0: You're listening to Plucking Up, a podcast that shares uninhibited conversations with celebrated authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and leaders about their pluck-ups. Our guests share their sometimes never-before-told mistakes, rejections, wrong turns, and the more difficult seasons of their lives and careers. But they're also sharing with us how they moved on and up and through to keep creating and inspiring others to build lives of purpose, passion, and impact. I'm your lucky and plucky host, Liz Bohannon. So our next guest, listen, she was in a position where frankly, she could not afford to have very many pluck-ups. And here's why. Our next guest moved to the U.S. from Chile at the age of 11 and faced a lot of challenges as an undocumented immigrant. She then became a DACA recipient, and she is now, get this, a producer for MSNBC's Morning Joe and the author of Earn It, Know Your Value and Grow Your Career in Your 20s and Beyond alongside Mika Brzezinski. She recently released her book, The Other, how to own your power at work as a woman of color for anyone who has felt othered so that they know they're not alone. Daniela Pierbravo is sharing so vulnerably from her really unique lived experience as someone who felt like for a lot of her life, she didn't really have the luxury of making mistakes and living kind of with this sense of fear and anxiety about how one tiny pluck up felt like it could really just derail her hopes, her dreams, her future. It's such a rich and interesting show, and I can't wait for you to get to know her more. So without further ado, my conversation with Daniela for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you, will you just give like a quick 10-second elevator spiel of who you are, what occupies your time right now,
1: today? Yep. So I am an on-air reporter for MSNBC's Morning Joe. I am a producer and contributor for NBC's Know Your Value, and I'm an author. I just came out with my second book, but my first solo book, which is called The Other, How to Own Your Power at Work as a Woman of Color.
0: Mm-mm. So good. This is going to be a juicy show. I just know it. Will you take us back into kind of the earlier season of your life? Think like childhood, early adolescence, and just share with us a little bit of your story of where you've come from.
1: So I'm originally from Santiago, Chile, um, and I grew up in a, a small town in Ohio. And um, part of the reason that I've written the book is because I've talked about my feelings of the other growing up. Um, mm. So I grew up undocumented. Um, I'm currently a DACA recipient, but in high school, it felt like a lot of closed doors one after the other because I was undocumented. And because I was in the shadows, I felt like I had to sort of hide parts of who I was. And I internalized a lot of shame mm. of my identity and who I was. And I didn't really know who I was because I was trying so hard to find and blend in and kind of stick to rules of inclusion or what I perceived as rules of inclusion. And that was to go under the radar. It was to uphold that sort of model minority sort of status. And and also, like, I felt like there was a lot of blame. I blamed myself for a Mm -hmm. lot because I didn't have the discernment to know that, you know, being the only doesn't mean that your liability or that that your differences are your liabilities, and so yeah. it took me a while to understand that. So um, I ended up uh, applying to the only college that would accept me uh, as a, a non citizen, um, and ended up uh, paying cash for my entire you know three and a half years because I couldn't get access to any government loans or um, government scholarships. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. My parents worked two and three jobs. I was the oldest of five kids. Um, So we struggled a lot, but eventually there was one summer that really kind of determined the rest of my life really, and opened up sort of a new path and an opportunity in a place where It felt really dark, really heavy, lonely, Mm -hmm. alienating, and kind of debilitating because there Mm -hmm. were so many closed doors because of my status. And I didn't have anybody to kind of tell me what to do or kind of consult me.
0: So I'm very interested in hearing about this kind of turning moment in this summer. But before we even get there, I'm curious, what is your earliest memory of being told or instructed or perceiving like it's dangerous for you to stick out, you know? Because I think for so much of us, for many of us, we have some sort of story from our childhood of a time where we didn't feel like we belonged, a time where we couldn't bring our full self to the table. But most of us, like for me, I, you know, I could tell you lots of things. None of them would have resulted in me getting kicked out of the country or or putting my family in danger or going to jail. So that's just like, that is a next level of like, that's not just like a perceived emotional or psychological thing. That's like the reality of your life was that in order to stay safe and to keep your family safe, there was a level of, you know, you had to hide to some degree. And I'm curious about when was the first time that that was like a conscious experience for you?
1: Two times come to mind. One of them hit more on the psychological end that really ingrained that I was the other and I was the problem and I needed to change. And the other example is is more of like the legal consequences. Oh, shit, what's going to happen moment. But the earliest one that I can think of, because um, I think I was in denial because a lot of times... When, and I've talked to other women of color, other people who have felt othered, you know, the book, I wrote this book, The Other, and I talk about my experience being documented, but for other people, it could be, you know, being part of the LGBTQ community. And there's a lot of denial of our experiences mm. because there's no validation of them. And so a lot of us might have an experience where being the other has had real repercussions, but we, we don't remember them because In order to get psychological safety, we just need to double down on whatever that person is saying. Yeah. So for me, that experience, I was in high school and I had many because I I went to a small town where it was mostly white people and there wasn't a lot of immigrants and certainly not Latinos. And, uh, I remember, you know, hearing disparaging comments about, um, immigrants all the time. But there was this one time where I was, um, I read about this in the book. Uh, I was at a dinner with my, um, ex-boyfriend's family and I was meeting them for the first time. And, you know, like a 15-year-old girl, 14-year-old girl, I don't remember how old I was. You're already reveling in nerves meeting the parents the first time. And, and their family was very different than mine. I mean, they were well off. They were educated. They have like the nine to five jobs. There was, they were always there to watch, they were always there to watch like the basketball games, the volleyball games, all that very different from, from my family. And I get to the dinner and my dad's like old beat up run down car that like, you know, gave up, like we were 20 minutes late because he was on a factory job across town. And it was a mess. Anyways, I get out of the car and I get to this dinner and in the middle of dinner, um, one of the parents say to me, so are you, are you an alien or, or do you have a, do you have a green card? Like, and I was like, I think I just went blank at that point. And I just kind of, I think I went into this autopilot mode where I just like made them feel better. Like, you know, I comforted them with lies because Mm. I think a lot of us as others, like we fear causing dissonance. Yeah. Right. In any situation. And I, and in the book, I talk about how it has real repercussions in the workplace. But when you're growing up, You're going under the radar and you're trying to cause, you know, the least amount of discomfort. And you feel like if you're causing somebody a discomfort and you're the only example of that, right? Yeah. Then it must be your fault. Yeah. And so I think for me in that moment, it was very clear to me if I had any doubt that I was different or if I was the other and I didn't belong, like, that was my concrete way of validating that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
0: if you can make other people feel more comfortable and limit the general discomfort, that it also makes it more possible for you not to have to grapple with the actual reality. Is in that way, what was the what was the legal one?
1: So I was going into my sophomore year of college, and you know I didn't have any money. Like I said, I was literally paying with the cash under my mattress that I was saving up because I couldn't get even a bank account. Yeah, And you know, I had been saving up little by little in high school, working like three jobs, um, whatever I could. And it was a summer before going into sophomore year. I was really excited. I had made friends. I had got into like mock trial and PSC. I was sort of a nerd. But I remember working that summer. I had like two restaurant jobs. And then I worked for Mary Kay. I was a senior consultant. um, And that was like a big part of how Mm -hmm. I was able to sustain myself through college. And I remember going on a delivery and I wasn't supposed to be driving because I didn't have a driver's license. And I had been so overworked that day and just like exhausted. And I was like overcompensating by making all my deliveries because I wanted to provide like a service that people really wanted to come back to. Like sure. that was the lifeline of my business. Yeah, And so I was um dropping off somebody's products and I accidentally fender bended, fender bended, fender bended. Is that the word? Sure. We're going with it. <laughs> yeah. So slightly like hit the car, parked car in front of me. And if it was any other car, it would have been fine, but it was like a really rundown car. And... I accidentally hit the accelerator instead of the brake. And I remember getting out of that car that day and just like shaking and not knowing what to do because for any other person, you know, you would have just exchanged insurance information and involved police and all that. And it would have been an easy, like, you know, no big deal. But for me, it was like my whole life was on the line. My whole future was on the line. My family's future was all in the line. And so I remember like asking the owner, like name your price. I mm. mean, can we keep this in between us and I'll just name your price. And, you know, the, the person could have said anything and they did. And um it ended up being like the few thousand dollars that I had saved up to return to school like three weeks after. And I just remember that day My mom doesn't really cry. She's always like the strong Latina who always says, you know, we're going to find a way out of this. And I remember she like went to go pick me up because I was like so shook. And we went into this empty parking lot. And I remember just like holding each other and crying. And I'd never seen her cry. And and she kept repeating over, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. And it was so such a big moment for me because we had never talked about the situation. We had never talked about being undocumented. It was always about survival mode. It was always about you're here, make the best of your opportunities, you know, even though, but, but it was a gray area, right? Because you don't have a clear slate to to start on. And so there was a lot of mixed emotions and it just, we both felt like that was like the last straw. Like I had created a path for a little bit of hope, going to school and and saving up money. Yeah. And I think that was like what destroyed it all. And it should have been a confirmation of just everything stopping and and for me not to even try anymore. Mm. But things took a turn and I decided not to take that as my, as my consequences and my future. Mm. But in that moment, it felt like everything stopped and that was it. Yeah. It's such a powerful
0: reminder. It's like the weight of that specific moment for you so significant because of your circumstances, but also, you know, how old were you at that time? Probably what, 17, 18,
1: 19? Yeah, I was like 17 or 18.
0: And you would come over to the U.S. when you were 11? Was that right?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
0: Just like thinking that that was seven years of a, there was probably just like a psychological weight and awareness that even before that moment you carried with you, right? That it's just like when I was listening to your story, the narrative that was running through my head was like, I'm not allowed to make mistakes. Right. Like, I have to play this perfectly. There is no margin for error because the consequences are so high. And I just think about the psychological cost of that, the emotional, probably even as a kid subconsciously, right? That you're just putting into... I can't mess up, I can't have a misstep, I can't make a mistake, that just like, that is not a nominal psychological and emotional, you know, we only have so much energy to devote in a day, right, towards our different pursuits and how much of your energy both mental and emotional probably went into just like don't mess up versus like dreaming about the future, pursuing this goal, going for this big thing, you know, on your like sports team, whatever the pursuits that occupy a lot of other kids, you know, kids mindsets, which is just something that I think whether it's because you're undocumented, whether it's because your financial situation is so precarious, whether it's because you come from, you know, a home maybe where there isn't reliable emotional support for you, just like the impact that that has on kids, of yeah. just like they can't, they actually don't have the availability to go out and pursue things because they don't have that psychological safety because it's all being spent over here.
1: Well, I've recently learned that you know, in in short terms, it's trauma, and I talk to my therapist about this. You are so right, Liz. Like for so long in my life, I felt like there was no room for error, and I talk about how that eventually. And the workplace catches up because mm. we know that there is no risk without, or there's no reward without any risk. Sure. Yeah. And staying within the line sometimes don't always benefit women, um, when they're trying to take up more power and space in the workplace. But that's absolutely right. And I think that I'm doing something counterintuitive in my life right now, which is, Finding ease and play, which oh, is something okay. that I never had mm-hmm. as a kid because I have realized just recently and when I was writing in the book that survival mode had a lot of, lot of impact on that yeah. and the ability to find it so hard to feel safe in like the space of who you are because we've always sort of inhabited the type of space other people told us to because yeah. it felt safe in that way. And um, yeah, it's something that's super counterintuitive. And it's the reason why I wrote this new book, The Other, mm. because a lot of us can't discern that that's the reason why we feel so heavy and lonely mm. sometimes. Yeah. It's because we've been operating by this conditioning that has felt like a huge responsibility to not take our eye Off the ball. Yeah. Because for so many of us in so many different ways it's had consequences. Yeah. Me because I'm undocumented, but there are so many other women of color and other others who have had their own versions of consequences when they, you know, when they try to draw outside the lines. And it's a conditioning. Yep. Yep.
0: Will you tell us a little bit about what was the summer where things kind of pivoted or changed for you that had kind of this long impact on the course of the rest of your life?
1: I was about to graduate and from high school um, it was from college from college okay um I was about to graduate from college and there was this one summer that I had left before I graduated and I knew that I needed that experience before the experience mind you I was still undocumented so logically if I were to get an internship somewhere that was renowned and you know had weight in my resume I probably couldn't use it. And I probably couldn't Mm. use my education. So this was the kind of life that I was living. I was like going through the motions, hoping and wishing that something would happen without any sort of guidance. Mm. But that was the only way that I decided to stay afloat. So last semester before I graduated, summer comes up and I say, okay, I'm going to apply to everywhere and anywhere in the city where I think that I'll be accepted in some way. Oh, and by the way, I've never been to the city, which is New York City. Okay. Um, so I applied everywhere and I found this marketing agency that Diddy has, P. Diddy, Sean Combs. I don't know the million names he has. Okay. <laughs> and they, you know, a lot of people didn't know about it, Blue Flame Agency, like, but it does all of his brands, okay. rock, Sean John, Bad Boy Entertainment. And I figured that if somebody was going to get this internship, it would be like because there wasn't a lot of available internships there, and it was unpaid. It would probably be somewhere someone that was local or stu- or you know studying at a college in Manhattan. So I decided to say a little white lie on my resume when I sent out my my resume to all these places, which is that I lived in New York City. I put in like a Columbia dorm address instead of the actual address um, of Oxford, Ohio, which is where I was studying. And I get a call back from, from Diddy's hiring manager um, at the marketing agency. And they go, you know, we do the screening interview. And she goes, you know, can you come in for an interview tomorrow? And I go, yeah, I can be there tomorrow. Oh Absolutely. <laughs> um, I wasn't in town. I hang up. I like immediately panic. And I'm like, okay, like what I do best, problem solving mode. All right. I can't get on a plane. I can't drive. I don't have an ID. What else? What, what else can I do? Let me get on a on a bus. All right. Where do I get on a bus? Who, who, like, what are the bus stations? You know, like, so I ended up, um, finding Greyhound bus and then I, um, got on a bus that night, like 18 hours, like nine really sketchy stops in the middle of the night. And I didn't really think it through of how <laughs> sketchy it was going to be. But, um, I get to Port Authority, I clean up, I wash, I change and I go into this internship interview and, um, you know, I tell, ta- I'll tell the hi- the hiring manager after the inter- their interview is over. I go, you know, I just want to confess to you that I I didn't, you know, just hop off a subway, but that I, I, you know, I just came from a bus from Ohio, but I just want to make you aware that if this internship ends up working out, I will do everything in my power to be here. And she just looks at me like I'm crazy. And she goes, you know, this is unpaid and, you know, we could have done this over Skype, <laughs> but I just wanted, I just wanted her sure. to know I didn't even know that was an option. I didn't totally. even want to give them an option. Yeah. Because that's yeah. what you do yeah. when you overcompensate and you don't have the opportunities other people have. Sure. And it's not just me. I mean, this story I don't think is unique at all. Yeah. It is a story of a lot of hardworking Americans, documented, undocumented, in this country, first-gen immigrants. I mean, this is this is the story of a lot of people in, in the U.S. So it's not at all unique. But in that moment, it was a pivotal part of my story because I was kind of like planting all these seeds of things that might not work out. Yeah, I was, you know, going down restaurant row, trying to get the managers to hire me to bus tables or clean tables or whatever it was. I was walking dogs during my lunch breaks. I was working at bars. I was promoting at clubs. I was babysitting, like literally doing everything that I could to support myself that summer. And Liz, that summer was so crazy because. It's when DACA came out Mm. and it was the deferred action that completely changed my life. And I had no idea it was coming.
0: I literally I have so many goosebumps right now of just like, (laughs) yeah, that that was the moment for you. And so how did you experience that? And then what changed for you? Well, it was the moment
1: of almost one million of us that I had no idea existed. Mm. I. Thought I was the only one. I thought that I had some sort of disease. Right? There was so much shame about my situation, and there was a community of us, which is so incredible. And I just remember, you know, not knowing that that announcement was going to come that day. And I was in the middle of my internship. I get a text message from a family member, and they go, "Can you turn on the TV right now?" And I'm like, "Oh my God! There's no TVs in this, and like by my cubicle." So I run down down this deli in the corner, and in the deli in the corner, there's this TV. And President Obama is giving his address on DACA, which is deferred action, telling all of us, addressing us that we were going to have an ID, an ability to work. And it, for me, it was more than that. It was an identity. It was sort of the seed of saying, okay, you belong, mm-hmm. you know, you, you matter. And. I knew that, like, I wouldn't have gone through all of those things without having confidence. But there's what happens up here in your brain, and then there's what happens here in your heart. Yeah. And sometimes that always doesn't fit together. And I think for a lot of us, to this day, we are working on our on our sense of worthiness mm-hmm. because a lot of us have had to feel like... if we shy away from that model minority figure, then we are no longer valuable. Yeah. And I wrote a piece in Cosmo during the pandemic, um, which kind of I really honed in on kind of equating my worth on my productivity and how much impact that had in my career. And again, it's not the story of just me, but it's the story of so many other people that I've had the chance to be in community with and speak to through these books and, and talking about my story. So I'm curious, I it's so fun
0: to hear about this journey for very different reasons. And I have a very different lived experience than you. Also at this point in my life and through therapy, <laughs> and through like where I'm at, this concept of delight, of pleasure, of play, of rest is something that I'm also experimenting with because yeah. for different reasons, I'm just realizing how deeply, I have internalized this truth of like, you have to earn your worth and you have to work for it and you have to produce. And if you take your eye off the ball and if you rest and if you don't, you know, attend to all of the things, they will fall apart. Yeah. So I'm curious as I'm kind of experimenting with this on my own and kind of deconstructing some things. I was born and raised in America into a family that's been in America for many generations. I'm curious about your you know, because if you lived in Chile until you were like 11, obviously there, you're, a significant part of your childhood took place there. And then your family obviously is, you know, their, their culture of origin not being American. Do you have any reflections on that as just a general construct that humans struggle with versus that being a very specific kind of American, deeply embedded cultural aspect? I'm just curious if you have any reflections on the actual kind of place and culture that influences that?
1: I think um, when I was writing this book, when we talk about self-empowerment and uh, power and value, personal value, we need to know the power of our identity. And for a long time, I struggled identifying and defining that. In a lot of spaces, I was too Latina. And in other spaces, I wasn't Latina enough. I wasn't American enough and I've always struggled with that. But part of what I have really reckoned with in this last sort of decade and writing this book is the power and the duality of who I am and the duality of of both cultures that I've experienced because I realized that when I better identify myself and I I feel in power of being able to lean into those two identities of being Latina, Chilean, and feeling American, even if I'm not American on paper, is that you bring more richness Mm. to the spaces that you inhabit, whether it's career, relationships, social settings, you know, and from a career point of view, because I I talk about it in my book, I cannot afford to not bring in my duality. Mm. I cannot afford to shrink or mute parts of who I am because I am in a position where as a storyteller, both on TV and, and writing, it's not about me. It's not just about me and being comfortable with my identity, but it's about all of the voices and the identities and the experiences that I bring to the table because I'm in the room and I've hold controllability. Of knowing that our duality is something that is important, that deserves to be seen, reflected upon, and, you know, that's why I'm a storyteller now. It's because I want to tell those stories, but I wouldn't be able to do that if I didn't reckon with my own sense of duality, and I have. Yeah. And that's why I say, you know, your duality is a superpower, um, because I've been able to bring in much more richness to the spaces at work and in my life because I've embraced all of who I am as a Chilean, as a Latina, and there are many qualities that I, you know, love that I've, you know, picked up and are part of my value system because I was also raised here. Sure. Listen,
0: on this show, we do not have a mission of like a stated mission of featuring voices of folks who are first-generation American or immigrants. I swear, over a third, and maybe my producers can fact-check me on this, my math. Mm -hmm. Anecdotally, I would say a third of people that we have on this show, which kind of our qualifier is like, you know, they're out there, they're creating, they're making, they're having a relative level of success in their various fields have a shared background in that way. And it's just like that cannot be accidental, right? The skills and the pain, frankly, of kind of realizing how to exist within that duality, but then stepping into that power and recognizing, oh, that actually isn't a liability. Like that is a huge asset that I have and that I can offer. It's just so cool to see that play out in so many different yeah. ways. Can you share,
1: well, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say um, A quote comes to mind of Eddie Glaude, who is a professor at Princeton University. And, you know, I I quoted him in my book, but you see the world differently. You see Mm -hmm. the world uh, on a different spectrum. You see it with a lot more colors. You see it with a lot more nuances because you've seen the really hard parts of, you know, growing up as the other, but, you know, and being included in, in white spaces. So you just, you just see the world a lot richer, I think.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. What was your journey from going to unpaid intern at P. Diddy's marketing firm to where you are today? Kind of what was at what point did you break through? And I mean, having an on air spot on a major network show. Tell us a little bit about that journey and how you got there. Was that something that you had a goal for that you like set out and chased? Or were you kind of just following some breadcrumbs?
1: I think it was a little bit of both, because yeah. <laughs> at, at one point I didn't really. I, I I felt like because I couldn't do anything, I imagined everything, right? And I always wanted to be a storyteller. I always wanted to, you know, be that person to tell the stories that I didn't see growing up. And after after that summer in of a lot of hustle in New York, I um I had a work permit that was going to be available to me in about six months, which is when. Coincidentally is which, which is when I graduated. And, um, I applied to the NBC page program. It's a miracle that I got in because I applied online. And, um, you know, this is NBC page program is like super well known. It's like the mecca of the entry for entertainment news media. You know, most of the people, you know, are know somebody that knows somebody that put the resume on top of the pile so i was like super surprised that i got a call back and um after like three or four rounds of interviews they invited me to come to 30 rock to do a kind of an all-day interview and i was back on that bus (laughs) and did the interview guess it went well they offered me the role as a page uh and it coincided with right when I graduated, but I had actually asked them to defer six months because I didn't have any money to mm-hmm. be in New York. Yeah. So I was just like, hey, I, I, I'm I, dying to do this. This is my dream. Can you hold off for six mm-hmm. months? Um. And so that's what happened. And for six months, I was like working at Olive Garden. I was working at like two Mexican restaurants. I was Mary Kane again. Mary Kane, that's not a word. I just <laughs> made it up, but I was selling Mary Kay. Um knowing that I would be in New York in six months. And yeah. so I moved to New York. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know anybody. Um, like a lot of people that come to New York, they just kind of start from scratch. That's what sure. I love about the city. And it ended up in the PAGE program, um, you know, w- which ends in a year okay. and you're not really guaranteed a job. Um, you just kind of have to interview for different shows or departments. And so, I worked in the talent department for a little bit at Saturday Night Live. I did audience coordination for Jimmy Fallon. Um, and then I got, uh, the assignment at Morning Joe, mostly, I think, because there was not a lot of people who wanted to do the 3 a.m. Yeah. wake up call. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, I like was in love with the concept of what Morning Joe, um, was. Yeah. And, um, I was really kind of like enamored with that sort of, Roundtable discussion that Mika and Joe had created that was like really one of a kind Mm -hmm. in morning television. So I was there for about a month and a half and the coordinator left to go somewhere else. And, um, I got Mika really good coffee. That's like really it. And I like, (laughs) I, 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 you know, I was really scrappy and eager and. You know, that was my way to differentiate myself through, you know, the revolving door of production assistant pages, coordinators, all of the other entry-level people. And I just was hungry. And Mika saw that and they offered me the full-time coordinator role. But, you know, the, the second part of my career growth was when I actually pitched myself in different ways because I think my career could have gone a lot different if it wasn't for that moment where I really advocated for Mm, myself and showed people what I wanted to be. um, Because I went from a a production coordinator to an associate producer to a booking producer, which is like helping, you know, create the editorial for the next day and getting people onto identifying the voices, who those voices should be for the show. And then reporting was a total pivot. And then I collaborated with Mika to do a book with her. So we wrote a Mm, book in 2019, which is called Earn It. So a lot of pivot points in my career. Um, but that's how I ultimately got from, you know, that unpaid internship, being undocumented and then eventually as a reporter.
0: It's so, you know, it's so interesting. And I feel like I even hesitate to say this because I'm just feeling like an old person lately. <laughs> like I feel like I find no. myself a lot of times being like young people these days, but it, you know, this idea that it's like, I feel like the ultimate kind of like disparaging glorified internship thing is right that you're just like a coffee runner. Like I'm going, I'm making copies and I'm getting coffee. And your story of being like, yeah, I got coffee and I got the best damn coffee in the city and I did it and I was eager about it and I was... And I just feel like I that's what makes me feel like an old person, because I'm like, see, you just have to get coffee and you have to hustle and you have to be like positive about it. And like a little bit, I feel like pushing against this idea That it's like from the get go, you should have the job of your dreams and you should have like great work life balance and that, you know, like you should be ushered into a place that sees all of your many talents and skills that you have as a 22 year old who's never like, you know, worked in a corporate environment or whatever the like environment is and especially positioning that against what I'm very much so perceiving because it's not necessarily the life stage that I'm in right now of like the current ideology of young people entering into the workplace for the first time. And I'm just curious about, like, what do you you have to say about that?
1: I think that I entered the workplace at a very different time. Um, And I think that, you know, there was a message of the girl boss hustle culture Mm. when I was, you know, coming in, um, which was an amazing message. And also what got me to where I am in a very accelerated way. Yeah. Like I, I, I've i only been in the workplace for about nine years. And so I think for me, it really differentiated um, what I brought to the table because I brought that hungerness. And first of all, I think that Gen Z, which is the generation after me, I think they're very smart and they're literally going to change the world, but they're coming into the workplace with a vastly different message Mm-hmm. which is at the heels of the great resignation. They're entering the workplace at a time where hustle culture is no longer in vogue. It's all about the rest and the ease and the work-life balance, which is great. And I talk about the importance of that in the book and going from earning it to owning it, okay. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I literally wrote the book on earning it. Yeah, But- You know, I think it's a very different message. It has to land differently for like the first year, two years, three years where you just have to go and you just have to be hungry and you have to be eager and you have to be scrappy and like hustle. Like now is not the time to be asking for a lot because you have to build value before you ask other people to, you know, give you what you're worth. You have to build that. And, um, I'm very clear about that when I talk to younger audiences, Mm. um, because you're not going to be able to differentiate yourself if you don't have that advantage of, you know, working the extra hours, being the yes girl, all of those things that I tell some women that they don't need to do anymore. Right. Right. Because my new book is all about how does the power of the no, the power of, taking up more space and being more at ease and not taking on the things that are below your pay grade. But that doesn't come at the beginning. Okay, um, see, You've yes, got to build I, the value.
0: Yeah, I'm even like in the same, I think I'm wrestling through like very similar tensions. And so I, I, I hesitate. One of my like shortcomings as a human is I just tend to, I want to make rules for things and I want <laughs> it to be black and white and like, formulaic, you know, but it does feel to me because it's like, yeah, I'm definitely not in a place where I feel like we should wholesale be rejecting or promoting rather this idea of like work at all costs and your value comes from that and just like hustle and then hustle until the day you die. As I expressed before, I'm in a season of life where I'm really experimenting with and wrestling through these concepts of like rest and delight and pleasure and value and meaning that is found outside of being productive or the workplace and i think i agree with you it almost just feels like it's like tied to a season so i feel like the rule that i want to make that i'm going to hesitate to make because generally i don't think life is prescriptive is like nope there's a season for both and actually in your early 20s and right out of school and and honestly for the first you know handful of years in your career I deeply believe that if you want to be in a place where eventually you get to choose to have some rest and some ease and some like picking and choosing of this is work that really aligns with me and that brings me to life and where I feel like I'm fully seen and frankly compensated for my gifts, actually a requisite to that is that you spend a decent amount of time just being the best at like whatever you're asked to do. And there's like a real value. You know, we had an intern one time at my company, unpaid internship program. You could get college credit for it. And she was she was going to Harvard at the time. By far, she was the smartest, innately smartest, most accomplished, most high achieving intern that we've ever had. And she was absolutely the most willing to do literally whatever needed to get done. And she ended up, you know, leaving our internship program. She went on, she started her own company. She was, you know, had like great success. But that story kind of always stuck with me because I feel like sometimes what keeps people from doing that is this sense of like, no, I have to show my worth. And that's going to immediately translate into saying no and to saying like, that's below me or I have boundaries versus like, oh, actually, like I believe deeply in what I'm capable of. And I also know my place at this organization. So like, sign me up. I'm ready to go. And just to me that that like really spoke. I just remember being like, well, she's definitely going places. And it wasn't because she was like, I'm a Harvard student right now. I'm not going to do that project. It was because she was like, I'm a Harvard student. And yes, I'll do whatever none of the other
1: interns want to do. And I think also this conversation needs to fold in managers and leadership
0: mm. because
1: you know there is a fine line between taking advantage of people that are volunteering constantly and yeah. raising their hand and putting the like extra hours. So I think part of that falls on management and leadership to make sure that people are noticed when things you know when they're when they are raising their hand when they are doing more when they are extending yeah. themselves. Yeah. and the other thing is. Managers and leadership could have a much better time with employees wanting to go above and beyond. Um, And I'm talking, you know, early stage. If there's more transparency about mm. what it is that they're doing, even the more menial things on yeah. how that helps the bottom line. yeah. So the more you incorporate them as part of the mission, as part of the greater goal, then they're going to feel invested. Sure in the company and the things that need to be done in order to find success. yeah, um, That's one thing. And the other thing is it's just strategic to be like hustle like the first year or two because you want to be able to say, this was my job description. Yeah. And I also did this, 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 and this. So I need this, this, and this money and I need this, this, and this. Yeah. Right. So it's like also, you know, an advantageous way for you to, have more leverage when it comes to negotiating after the second year, the third year, right? Yeah. So that's also important to think about as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So will you share with us,
0: so kind of in your journey from kind of like, I'll do whatever I need to get it done and I'm going to be hungry and I'm going to hustle to nine years later where you're at now and kind of the concepts you're exploring, surely I'm guessing at some point along the way you made a mistake. Or you were like, "Ooh, I really aired in this direction too much, or I didn't pivot soon enough, or fast enough, or whatever it might be." Will you share any any moment in the last nine years that you would define as a pluck up?
1: You're not going to like this because <laughs> I I I believe that every pluck up really is a lesson, and I'm not I would not want to change it. Um, and I think for me, the biggest pluck up, but, and I'm going to tell you why, why it was actually a really good thing that that happened. Weirdly, it feels so weird to say this, but the accident, like, I mean, that was a big pluck Mm -hmm. up. The the accident was a big pluck up. Um, I shouldn't have been driving. Um, I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't overextended myself. I, you know, all these things, Sure. but this is the weird thing. If I wouldn't have gotten to that accident, I would have graduated earlier. So because I got into that accident, I had to take a semester off school. I couldn't return. And I went into college only having to do three years because of college credit that I did in high school. The unpaid internship that summer was... I mean, you have to, in order to have an unpaid internship, you know this, you have to have college credit. Like you have to, you have to be a college student. Sure. If it wasn't for that accident, I would have graduated in May and I wouldn't have had that experience that summer. Yeah. Cause I would have had it, you know, I wouldn't have graduated in December. So in a weird way, I don't know, it feels weird to say that, you know, it ended up helping because I never want to say that about doing something that was sort of like not supposed to happen like on paper, like yeah. sort of illegal, but it, it did. It did happen that way. And I don't know. I, I just, every pluck up, no matter how unthinkable it is at the moment that it would pay off or has a lesson, that was fine. That's well, my I'll, pl- I'll put you at
0: ease and I will say, I don't think it's a requisite that you regret your pluck ups. So I think you're okay. well, you are well within the acceptable <laughs> okay. definition of. I'm a rule person too. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, does this fit or not? <laughs> um, because I think there's a difference between saying I'm unwilling to acknowledge that it was a mistake versus like, no, it was a mistake. But through that, like, there, you know. I was able to find meaning or purpose or, you know, or it ends up being kind of this turning moment that in a more mystical, fortuitous way, I see how these kind of pieces came together and that in the end, it ended up, serving me. I'm curious what would your takeaway for that be for a listener? I'm guessing your takeaway isn't necessarily just like go out and purposely get in a fender bender. Right. So what to you as you kind of think about the meaning beyond the very cool kind of unfolding of the timing that that specific mistake afforded you, what is what is kind of the universal lesson meaning takeaway for our listeners out of that moment? And maybe not just necessarily the pluck up itself, but what you did to recover from the pluck up that you can share with us.
1: So for me, you know, the value and the lesson was how deeply I was able to self-trust after that moment Mm. and how deeply I was connected to my gut because there was no one else there to tell me This is what you have to do. And if you do this, this will happen. Yeah. And something really powerful happens when you are that person Mm. that defines the lane that you want to go in and what kind of car you're driving in that lane. Yeah. And I think for me, that was, that was a really pivotal moment to say, I have power, even if it seems like I'm powerless. Yeah. And it's all about Trusting my gut and going and doing one thing at a time and believing that things are going to pan out because every decision that you've made, you've made it through this deep place of self-trust. Yeah. And I think that's my biggest lesson. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I love that. And I love that unless sometimes the rubber hits the road and we really are backed into corner or if we're pursuing a path that everyone around us is going like, yes, 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 you're getting all of this external validation that it actually keeps us from having to rely on our own still small voice that says like, but what does my gut say and what do I want? And so sometimes when all of those external things are removed, I know with my kids, one thing that I've been trying To be pretty faithful to, not without fault, but when they do something that I think is really impressive or, you know, interesting before I rush in to tell them how I feel about it, which is so natural, right? Of like, oh my gosh, you're so smart. Oh my gosh, that's such a great, you know, picture. Oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you for climbing that mountain, whatever it is, is just like creating the space for them Mm -hmm. and going before I rush in to fill it in, just going like, whoa. How do you feel right now? And just like building up that muscle for them before they look at mom to say like, am I good? Am I accomplished? How do you feel about me, mom? Of me reflecting back to them, like actually the first question that I wanna ask is like, how does that make you feel? And to listen to their own voice in that moment. But I think for many of us, and you know, even if our parents do that and assist with that, sometimes it takes a really painful kind of stripping away of those outside voices that are cheering us on and clapping for us and saying this is the next thing that you need to go do and kind of stepping into the wilderness before we can really truly say like I can trust myself I know what my own voice sounds like and I've had experience of listening to it and honoring it in a way that is like worked out that kind of builds that builds yeah. that muscle for us and and I've recovered from a pluck up yeah totally of like the worst yeah. the worst case thing has happened, I think sometimes, and man, that is such a theme. I feel like on this show is folks getting to a point where there was something that held so much fear for them mm. or power over them and like how subconsciously we can orient our life to avoid the worst case scenario. Yeah. And then when the worst case scenario happens and you live through it, there is actually this really powerful thing that that thing no longer holds power over you that you may not have even recognized was such a subconscious right director of your choices and of your steps was like, just avoid that worst case scenario. And there's something that is, I think- devastating in the moment. So anybody who is like, no, I'm in the midst of it right now and I'm not feeling great about it. I do want to honor that and say I think there are very few people that when they are in the moment of the worst case scenario can go like, wow, well, through this I'm going to build all of this self-trust and the power of this thing is going to go away. Yeah. But speaking from this kind of collective wisdom of people who have been there and who are now on the other side of it and who would say I wouldn't change it. Like there is something that got unlocked in me, an external power that dissipated and an internal sense of trust and knowledge uh, that emerged from that moment that I wouldn't change my story. So if if we do have any listeners that feel like they're in that, my friends and I call it DOD. It stands for depths of despair. Mm. (laughs) So if you get a text and it just says DOD, you know that someone's in a really bad place. Mm -hmm. For anyone who is in that moment of the depths of despair, I do just want to take a moment to encourage you and to say something is being built in you in these moments that you may not be able to feel or grasp onto or internalize or verbalize right now that's changing you and that you will come out on the other side with a new perspective and level of trust in yourself that sometimes we only get the really, really hard way. Yeah. Well, Daniela, thank you so much for being on the show. It was such a delight to learn more about you. Where can our listeners find you, read your stuff, tune in, tell us all the things about how we become Daniela Groupies?
1: Ooh, I feel like we just went through a whole therapy session. That was fun.
0: <laughs> um, Wait, my producers, can- my producers didn't,
1: and they weren't clear that we were really
0: going to go there with you. <laughs> just kidding. I, I always sneak it in. Yeah.
1: Um, so yeah, I'd love to hear from your audience members. I'm at d pierre bravo um and for the book i always like supporting local bookstores so i'm in most local bookstores um, if i'm not just ask for the book I'm on amazon and where all kind of major retailers are barnes and noble all that good stuff i love it thank you
0: so much for sharing this space with us and sharing your wisdom and lived experience and your
1: pluck we really appreciate it thanks so much liz
0: This podcast was made possible in part by my amazing producers at Human Group Media. For updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit LizBohannon.co or follow either of us on Instagram. I'm at LizBohannon. They're at Human Group Media. And we do love hearing from our plucky community. Well, that's all for now. You know the drill. Stay plucky.